0: Hello and welcome back to the Performance Cycling Podcast. I'm Todd Norwood here with my co-host Jason Hammond. Hey everyone, how's it going? Back for another episode of Lockdown Remote Podcasting.
1: Yeah, the usual uh, apologies if there's any technical issues, but uh, we've done two so far that have turned out well, so uh, maybe we're starting to get the hang of this.
0: All right, so we're, you know. Now that we may be getting tired of being isolated, we're actually going to talk about fatigue a little bit here.
1: Yep. So uh, this episode is going to start out with um, a paper that I stumbled on for actually the last episode, which was single leg cycling. And uh, if you listen to it or not, I think single leg cycling is fascinating. It's an open research topic. I'd encourage you to go listen to that episode. But one paper that I found, um, there's this phenomenon in uh, – I guess, human anatomy or maybe uh, animals in general that, so say you, you know, you're laying on a table and you maximally contract your right quad as hard as it can and you hold it for 20 seconds. Um, Scientists did an EMG, which is just measuring the the amount amount of electricity, the amount of nerve firing that occurs in the muscle. And uh, after the effort, they did the same thing again with the left quad and Basically, the left quad wasn't able to contract as hard as the right quad had. And it's weird because, well, they're different muscles. Why would contracting the right quad affect the ability to contract the left quad? And um, the paper that I found actually talks about for endurance athletes. They did single leg cycling to simulate this effect, this maximal contraction, in a more in, in a lower intensity way, a more spread out way. So they did a four minute effort instead of a 20 second effort. And they didn't notice a difference from the left quad and the right quad, or specifically the left leg and the right leg's ability to produce power. So they said, well, this effect of the fact that a maximal contraction of the one leg prevents a maximal contraction of the other leg. This doesn't occur in endurance environments, only maximal contractions. And it's interesting because the one of the big takeaways of the single leg cycling episode was that we have uh, peripheral fatigue and we have central fatigue. And these maximal contractions that cause a, uh, a lack of ability to use the other leg, it, it shows that there's some sort of central fatigue. The fatigue is not peripheral or localized to the quad specifically, it's a fatigue that occurs on the whole muscle. So I sent this uh, paper to Todd and he said, oh, that's, uh, that's like a lot of stuff that I'm interested in. And, uh, and well, now Todd has more to tell us about uh, central fatigue versus peripheral fatigue and how all these different areas interconnect. And um, I think the one of the big takeaways is um, we don't really know that much. Um, and it's it's also an open research project or an open research topic. So, um, yeah, Todd, uh, take it away and help us understand what's going on,
0: or at least understand understand what we know, and or and yeah, maybe but, no, a little right. bit about we what we don't know about the topic, right? Yep. So I think that's probably the most interesting thing is if you go through and you you read this, there's a lot of different approaches and a lot of really clever experiments that try to. Understand why this happens, and you know there's all these different approaches, and it's like, well, what? But what? But what is it, right? Um, and so I think that those ones you point out, are, there's a difference between maximal contractions versus um, endurance type contractions, and there's there's actually a, a name for that. It comes from a, a Russian scientist, uh, particularly talking about the endurance type contractions, and you actually see something even different and more unique, and it's called the uh, Sechenov phenomenon and so what happens is if you're doing something like single leg cycling for example um, and you you create fatigue on one side and then you rest and then if you come back and you just rested your your force is lower because you were fatigued this makes sense but if you exercise the opposite side during that rest period right so you were cycling with your right leg you fatigued it you stopped now you started cycling with your left leg if you go to cycle with your right leg again Actually, your right leg does better than had you done nothing at all, which hmm. seems sort of bizarre, but then you say, well, maybe there's something happening. Um, but the point being is it's, it has nothing to do with blood flow, because you would think if you exercised the opposite leg, that would have diverted blood flow over that leg.
1: Huh? So um, you're saying it doesn't have anything to do with like clearing out toxins or anything like that in the leg that's already fatigued?
0: Right. So you know is is there something happening with the brain and what's going what's going on with that um and i think that's you know we certainly use this within physical therapy um let's say not infrequently uh we start to of take advantage of this and we appreciate that the you know the two limbs although they are separate right and it's you know it's your left quad and your right quad that there is some overlap that you can use and you can you can sort of borrow so um, for example, if a uh, patient's had a knee surgery, what we might do is, you know, if they had right knee surgery, we might have them contract their left quad a whole bunch. And the thought is it's sort of priming the, the nervous system to contract the right quad. And I've seen it happen. You get, you, you know, somebody, you ask somebody to contract their right quad, it's weak, it's you know, post it's inhibited, they're having a heck of a time doing it. Say, so, okay, hey, can I have you just contract your left quad? A dozen times for me. They look at you like you're crazy because, like, I, you know, I had surgery on the right leg. What do you want me to do this thing on the left leg for? Mm-hmm. And, and sure. sure enough, then all of a sudden the right, you know, the right leg like springs to life and they're able to contract the quad. So wow. there's something, right? There's something about, about the nervous system interacting with the muscles and this, this cross body phenomenon that, that does occur and is, is pretty real. Now, that doesn't answer our fatigue problem.
1: Yeah. Other so, than
0: just to elicit there's an interaction here that's happening that's not single-sided.
1: Yeah, my initial reaction actually reading the paper was that there must be some point in the nervous system where the nerves uh, overlap or combine or, uh, you know, they they interact some way higher up the system. And fatiguing that combined uh, nerve area prevents the other leg from getting all of the power it needs, and um, I sort of jumped to there is. It must be some sort of nervous system relationship uh, that that combines them all. Is that is there science behind that? That was just sort of uh, what popped into my head reading it.
0: Yeah. So the, okay. So there's different levels of um, kind of like the nervous system and how we how we think about this. So if you think more peripherally, um, you sort of look at. The nerve directly as it's going to influence the muscle, so uh, it's a very like a very short path, right? Like the nerve right before it hits the muscle, and what you see is, you know, so if I ask you to do a repetitive task with the muscle until it fatigues, um, you'll you'll work 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 work, you know. We measure we could measure the EMG output of the muscle, and over time that would decrease, and then if you go and uh, actually stimulate the nerve that, um innervates that muscle what you will see is that you can contract it but it either takes more and more juice to contract it Mm -hmm. or for the same amount of juice you get less contraction of the muscle so there's some some fatigue at the muscle tissue that's happening that's sort of the the hypothesis that's how you take the hypothesis and say okay there's fatigue at the muscle tissue which makes sense right you you do that's that is a real that is a real thing right you could exhaust the fuel source you can exhaust the the muscle can just not want to contract anymore. Yeah,
1: isn't there also like you have a buildup of protons on one end of the nerve? Is that correct? Um, well, basically so you, the yeah. um, the electrical balance is no longer like right, the voltage difference is no longer right, as high, right. so
0: you can't um, get the chain You can't. You don't have the change in voltage to be able to get the contraction.
1: Yeah. So when you rest, the nerve naturally goes back to the change the change in electron Charged. Excitation. Yeah, It goes to yeah. its
0: yeah, charge state.
1: But when you, it's like a battery, you use it way too many times at once. You don't let it recharge. Then it just isn't as strong.
0: Yep. So that's, that's one, you know, that's one way that you see it. Um, now there's other interesting, um, you know, certainly there's psychological fatigue. I think we've all had that and we can certainly talk about that, but I don't know that, you know, yeah, if you're mentally not in, the game or the race or what have you you're not going to put forth the effort right if you're not focused mm-hmm. and the, any any number of things can influence that right it can be your legs hurt right or the situation of the race is unfavorable I think mean, we've talked about bad weather before right and it's like oh the weather's terrible today i'm in a crummy mood i'm cold and miserable i'm not motivated to race i'm motivated to go back to the car and bundle up in something warm and dry.
1: Yeah. And I, I guess um, the argument here is that might not really be uh, scientific in the, in, the nat- in the way that we describe these other things. Like, It's hard to give a percentage value to the motivation level of an individual. And we know the power of motivation. And if you go to the wet race and say, I'm excited because I think everyone else is going to wuss out and I'm not. Or if you go to the race and you say I'm cold and wet and I'm not having fun, that that can dramatically change your outcome of the race. But that's not, you know, there, there's no quantifiability in that, and sure. that's largely why maybe we can't explore that as well. And it's hard to describe how much that influences um, our body.
0: And, yeah, I think mean, you know, I think, I think we we'll we'd all agree it's a a real effect, right? It Absolutely. it exists, but. To your point, like how do you how do you quantify it? I mean, I guess you could, you know, do something like take a psychological inventory before <laughs> before various events and measure, you know or take a psychological inventory before your your, you know, time trial and then measure your power output and your performance and see you yeah, know Yeah, or I wonder if
1: um I wonder if like you could use music or um, something like that to affect someone's mood or maybe not music, but like um, keep them up late at night or um You know, make them feel lousy. But, you know, then we even get into it's too hard to control. There's a lot of bias.
0: It's, yeah. I mean, you certainly see this in psychology studies where they'll like show somebody a a scary movie, right? Or have somebody um, do something nice for the person and then see how they react five minutes later. Mm. Um, And, you know, it tends, they tend to be nicer if somebody was nice to them versus if somebody was mean to them. Um, So, yeah, you can manipulate those things and there's, precedent for it in the psychological literature but there's i think more there's more steps to it probably than just yeah. that like
1: well i'm just thinking like the next step in um pro cycling improvement is uh when they get their morning coffee have the barista smile at them and you know give them a compliment and then right. their power goes up three percent or something
0: right you're, you're looking fast today
1: yeah they're like oh guess i am huh right
0: so um but yeah, I mean you know that's certainly um possible. Uh, and certainly there's a there's a real effect there, but to your point, how do we measure it? Yeah um, and how do we, how do we measure it reliably? So, okay, and then as we move sort of back centrally, I, I tend to think of central as central nervous system, at least that's why when I say it, but um you know, heart is also fairly central if you you know look at it, right? That's yep. distributing the blood out to the muscles. And so when you look at the Heart the heart is very unique compared to other muscles, um, and so typically you would ar- they would argue that heart fatigue is really not why you're <laughs> incapable of continuing exercise. Um, it's actually muscular fatigue, and so here's here's why. One, the you know this makes a couple assumptions, like you have adequate levels of hydration, you have a reasonable level of fuel on board, but you know, the way my book states it is, as well the heart's on nervous wrist so it'll consume lactate it'll consume glucose it'll consume free fatty acids it can metabolize and use all those subst- substrates for energy so it doesn't it doesn't have the same limitations as our skeletal muscle do in terms hmm.
1: of and and that's at any um, like heart rate, so if you're at 180 Correct. beats per minute, you're still you can still use all three substrates.
0: Yes, but I think it's going to be you know easier at lower intensities for same. I mean, same idea as our typical muscles, right? Fatty okay. acids can be more readily available at lower intensities versus you know lactic acid at, at for, for shorter term efforts and higher higher sure. levels. Yep. Um, but you don't see changes in a in EKG even at like maximal intensity you don't see any changes that would indicate it faltering in any way you hmm. don't see any changes in oxygenation and so you know one of the hypotheses is well you know the heart's basically the first first thing off the lungs when you have freshly oxygenated blood hmm. right and those vessels are right there so those are like literally the first vessels that are going to get fed with oxygenated blood and it has a, it's a short distance to travel right like it's yeah there's right, no decay it's right there
1: yeah Yeah. So So they get all the best nutrients, all the best oxygen right into them. They have the highest uh, oxygen gradient as well so that they get a higher absorption rate.
0: Right. So, okay, that, you know, like that makes sense. That's hard to argue with. Um, But so basically you can go through and the argument they make here is that if you see any changes in the heart EKG, there's probably actually pathology present. Right. There's probably actually something wrong with the heart, um, hmm. if, but if your heart is healthy and there's really no upper limit or there's no indication that that's going to break down, even with, um, you know, if you reduce oxygen and you start to go up to healthy a little bit, that's still not the limiting factor there.
1: Huh. Yeah. So uh, basically you're arguing our heart is good to go for all of our endurance needs and we should be looking yep. elsewhere for where the fatigue may occur
0: right and so we either have to say well okay is it in the muscle tissue or is it in the central nervous system or you know one one or the other mm-hmm. um, but not we, we should not blame. and and okay sure yes we have some fixed vo2 max or some capacity but within that capacity right like yes if the other person's vo2 max is 20 points higher than yours um, they might run or cycle or do whatever faster than you can or possibly for longer than you can but uh, you know, within your, your capacity, you're probably not limited by the heart provided the heart is healthy. Okay. And you're, you know, properly nourished, right? You're like not severely dehydrated. So, uh, you know, check the heart off the list of things that might limit you. Now here, here we, I will introduce the controversial, I think less controversial now, but at the, at the time this book was written, and um, I was reflecting to Jason before he started recording. It's not uh, not the most modern textbook, but I think still the foundations of the physiology haven't changed. So it's still a good point of reference. Uh, but so Central Governor Theory, which is um, Tim Noakes is sort of the pioneer of this and his colleagues uh, in South Africa. And it's super controversial when he first uh, proposed it and I, I want to say it was in 96 was when he first proposed this theory. So,
1: And actually, Tim Noakes is, is like a pretty famous um, sports scientist as well. He has a lot yes. of really well-respected papers. And throughout, like he's uh, he's pretty old at this point. And I think he's had papers for, um, you know, 30, 40 years now that have gotten a lot of really good feedback. And um, this, I think, is one of his theories that uh, didn't. Turn out as well as a lot of his other papers.
0: Yes, I think. Well, I think you have to remember that the the world of sports physiology and sports performance has been working on a on principle, basically, you know, man is machine, from nineteen twenties on, right? So there's a until he came out with this. There's like basically an eighty year history of trying to figure out where the limits of fatigue were, and they're basically digging through kind of all the things we're going through right now. Well, okay. Is it the muscle? Is it the heart? Is it the lungs? And trying to pin down, Oh, is it lactic acid, you know, concentrations, is it, you know, and very, you know, very specific measurable things. Mm-hmm. And which you could find evidence from, right. I, if I recall correctly, it's like the reason we even started measuring lactic acid is someone got, um, you know, deer or something that had been chased and ultimately you know died and then they biopsied the muscles and found there was a high concentration of lactate and they said in basically the conclusion was ah well lactic acid was it right like they basically ran themselves into the ground hmm. and so that was like that's how lactic acid came actually to be as you know the culprit that we often you know, accuse it of being
1: yeah And um, so these, you know, these researchers, they wanted to be able to quantify uh, what they were looking at. And this runs into the same, you know, we we just said that it's really difficult to try and describe someone's mental preparation for a race or event and compare that to performance. So it's only natural to gravitate towards the, the areas of research that we could quantify and we could have a white paper that says a percentage on it or, you know, an actual quantifiable value
0: yeah I, I mean absolutely i think we we all try to do that on our bikes too right we have a heart rate monitor we have a power meter uh, what five percentage of my max heart rate or my ftp or, or what have you we, these things are very quantifiable but you know i think compared to that if you look at central governor theory it's not as quantifiable yeah so do it, you
1: mind giving a like a summary of the central that's, governor theory? yes
0: So basically what that's saying is it's not the muscles in and of themselves. It's not the heart or lungs in and of themselves. It's none of these peripheral tissues necessarily, but it's actually the brain that's running the show and the brain is the central governor. And so the brain is reading uh, inputs from all over the body, right? It's reading temperature. It's looking at your blood glucose levels. It's looking at your glycogen levels it's looking at your hydration all all of these factors and you know making some calculation as to uh, relative to your situation i mean i think it's it's easy to think about this as a distance like a time trial is a nice example for central governor theory and so it's okay i have 40 kilometers right and i it's you know 60 degrees outside and it's a sunny day and i'm feeling great and i'm well fed and hydrated and all those things and i've trained up for this I can go at this pace, right? And your brain says, yep, that's good. I'll let you go at that pace. And I'm not, you know, you're not going to feel, you're going to feel the right amount of fatigue for that pace, right? Like, you know, it's a strenuous, but I'm good. And then, you know, if something changes, right, if all of a sudden you're going into a headwind, your brain's going to make some calculation and say, well, no, you can still have, you know, you still have 35 kilometers to go. You're doing okay, but now you have a headwind. So it's going to take you longer. Tell you what, I'm going to you know turn the dial down a little bit for you because, you know, and like, it's going to feel a little harder, right? Like you'll be going at a slower pace and it'll feel like the right pace. Or if you're trying to maintain the pace you intended, it might feel a little too hard. And so there's this, you know, dynamic switch that the brain's always turning and dialing based on, you know, tons of information, right? Probably more than we're really able to comprehend and saying, Hey, too fast, too slow. And then, Give, you're you're then taking in some subjective feeling about this, like this is too hard, this is too easy, right?
1: Yeah. Uh, so is um is the central governor theory saying that the brain tells us how hard it thinks the effort is, or so is it saying our capacity to you know both. complete the effort? Okay.
0: Right. So like your your subjective appreciation of central governor is like, boy, this feels really hard today, um, but that's really probably your brain looking at. All the data, which again, it's some of that's data that we are capable of measuring, right? That could be a lactate level, that could be hydration, that could be a heart rate, um, and some of this is probably data we're not really capable of measuring, right? Like different stretch receptors in our muscles that would be hard for us to to quantify during exercise, mm-hmm. and your brain saying, "Okay, well, you're you're capable of doing X, and I'm going to set the threshold to." Right. I'm going to allow you to do this much. Yep. And so one of the, the pieces of evidence that Noakes uses for like two, like two interesting things he talks about is one thing he talks about is the finishing spurt. Right. And we've all experienced this either when we're close to the finish line or close to the end of a hard workout. All of a sudden, just have this miraculous ability to go a little bit harder. Yep. So like, well, well, wait a minute. I thought you were tired. I thought you'd gone as hard as you could. So how how is it possible that you can go a little harder when you see the finish line?
1: Yeah, so I, I think I remember reading this study. He, um, he basically said, um, you know, do VO2 max until you are completely exhausted to these individuals. And then they got to decide when they were completely exhausted. And then when they said, like, hey, I'm done, he, he would say, okay, sprint for 10 seconds. Uh-huh. And every single one of them could sprint. And he's you know, he said well, you said you were done and and then right. you sprinted. Uh, and so this is um, you're arguing or the central governor theory is arguing that the brain has made a calculation that it's okay to allot more resources because we know we'll be done in 10 seconds.
0: Right. And that, you know, sure continuing at VO2 max pace for too much longer was unsustainable. But if you're only asking me to friend for 10 seconds, well, of course, no problem. I I can, I can do that. And I think, you know, I think another piece of this is part of central governor theory is probably that we don't always go to the absolute limit, right? Like there's some self preservation that's occurring as well.
1: Yep. And that's like, um, Well, I guess that's interesting because um, one of my favorite videos is um, I think it's Johnny Hoogeland from the Netherlands did the one kilometer time trial and then he he collapsed on the floor afterwards after winning the gold medal. And um, the argument was he was able to overcome, you know, the brain saying like, hey, we want you to make it through this and, uh, you know, was able to sort of put that on the back burner so that he could really give out all of his effort.
0: And so, all right. So I think the notes goes on the, on the flip side of that. It's like, well, why isn't everybody collapsed? Right? Like if we could really do that, shouldn't everybody collapse at the end of every race? If they were really going as hard as they could. Hmm. Right.
1: Well, I think that's interesting because, um, I'm just, well, I'm just finding so many connections here. Like, um, we know that elite marathon runners can lose eight to 10% of their body weight. Um, from water losses. um, And they see almost no performance detriment. Whereas in um, more amateur athletes, you'll see a decrease in performance at two to 3% Uh body weight loss. And um, so I guess um, this argument, and I've I've heard this before, and I'm willing to believe that it's true, is that a lot of training is convincing the central governor that we're going to be okay proving that you can and so the reason these marathon runners can lose uh, all of this water mass and the reason that you know olympic level time trialists can give it their all and collapse on the floor is because they've taught their brain that they they're going to make it through that and the rest of us haven't been able to teach our brains that
0: yeah i guess they you know they've they've pushed that back right or they've they've got their you know, central governor to give them a little bit more wiggle room than the rest of us.
1: And um, I guess the natural question here is, are there experiments directly attempting to push back that central governor? Um, you know, t- attempting to directly affect that as opposed to, you know, a lot of the studies we read is um, the O2 max was increased by this much, uh, FTP increased by this much, but are there somewhere, you know, I, I guess, you know, how do you separate that from, you know, Hey, look, we were able to convince the brain that, that we're going to be okay. And as a result, we saw a performance increase.
0: So I think you have to look to like, to try to get at this. I think it's challenging in some ways, right? Cause you, to do it, you'd have to influence the brain and you'd probably have to influence the brain at a number of points, right? If you, if you assume that, it's not just one point of data that your brain is looking at, right? Like if it's just like, oh, well, the brain's only, only really cares about heart rate. There, you know, there are medications that will slow your heart rate down. Like if you just slow your heart rate down, but that's going to, that's also going to influence your, uh, your cardiac output, right? So you can't, you, you can't separate those two. So, you know, okay. So, but that you assume the brain's looking at many things. That's the sort of part of central governor, the brain sort of overseeing and managing all these different systems um and so i think there's a couple things there's I think this very famous used to be classified i don't know if it still is fully classified yeah. certainly not totally classified anymore but mm-hmm. uh british special forces there's two things i think of so there's one with the british special forces where they had people doing um arithmetic while they were training like on a treadmill and you saw much, much greater improvement in time to fatigue and, you know, aerobic parameters for people who had trained doing the mental work hmm. than those who had not. And so you're like, okay, well, there's something, some load was placed on the brain, right? Some additional load was placed on the brain and not on the body, but yet the body got better. Yep. So is that saying that the, did, you, did they somehow change the, set point for the central governor to allow more, you know, more stress on the system.
1: Yeah, well, you know, the only effect in that study is on the brain. And so if you could see improvements just by changing the brain, then it seems to indicate at least that the brain has some effect on, you know, our standardized uh, testing protocols.
0: So that one, and the other one I think about when I think about this a lot is um, the mouth rinse study, right? When you we are doing a cycling time trial, and you rinse your mouth with a carbohydrate solution, but don't swallow any of it. That so you see your performance increase.
1: Yeah, and this like, one's so. uh, this one's pretty interesting. Yeah, so you, you it's you like swish the carbohydrate-rich fluid and then spit it out. So you consume yep. none of it, but um, your body thinks that you've had sugar,
0: or at least th- your body has the recognition that sugar is coming right like it's it's on its way so i'm good right and so but i think the hypothesis that comes out of that is okay well you know these people are riding along and the central governor was saying oh, i can do i can do x because my current fueling is y and now you switch this carbohydrate and you know, i think we're all trained a little bit right a little pavlovian response like, oh hey i just drank some some drink and therefore Glucose is about to get into my system, except now it's not. And so you get sort of a feed forward response, and the brain says, Oh, hey, more fuel. Okay, great. We can, you know, we can turn up the dial a little bit because we have more fuel now. Let's let's continue on, even though the fuel never arrived.
1: Yeah. And and I think even more evidence for this was another study where they, um, you know, they can dope uh, chemicals so that you can see them on an X ray in the body, mm-hmm. like add yep. a uh, radioactive, uh, ion. Yep. And they, they doped some carbohydrates and the individual said that they felt better having the carbohydrate after, you know, something after like five minutes, but the, the carbohydrate was not found in their muscles until after 15 minutes. And it's like, well, five minutes later you feel good, but you didn't have the sugar for another 10 minutes. So what's going on in the middle there? And uh, the argument, I guess, again, is that your brain has signaled, hey, we're going to be okay. It's on the way. And it changes that factor in its decision of how hard something is and how much effort it's willing to put out if, you know, the, you know, like there's the subconscious brain and then there's the conscious brain. The conscious brain is saying we need to go as hard as we can. And the subconscious brain is sort of putting the brakes on them. And then you have carbohydrates, the brakes get let up a little bit and you get to get closer to fully exploring, you know, the, the, um, conscious desire to go harder.
0: I mean, in, in essence, it's like a a placebo effect, right? I mean, we talk about placebo effect all the time, right? Of you feel better or something changes, even though you got something that was purportedly inert. Mm. Um, and in, in essence, that is right. A placebo effect at play. It's like. You got something inert, you have the taste of a sports drink, but you didn't actually get the feel from it. And all of a sudden now you're riding faster. Yeah. And how, how else do you explain that than the brain, something changed in the brain?
1: Yeah. So um, and another area that this sort of connects with my background is um, in machine learning, there's um, this model called a neural network. And it's funny because a neural network was originally designed around the way our brain uh, interconnects. But the idea is there's uh, there's starting nodes and there's ending nodes and then there's hidden nodes. And each of the starting nodes is some factor, like for our example, um, you know, perceived hydration level, like weather, um, how good was your sleep last night? Are there other life stresses? These are all, you know, one node on the start side. and they follow through this web of other nodes and other connections, and every node is connected to every other node, and they're multiplied by some factor. And as you follow through the model, once you get to the end nodes, they're added together, and if that number is greater than 1, then you know it's true. And if the number is less than one, it's false. And so you're boiling down all of this information. And the point of the machine learning is you have all this data that's either true or false. And you use that to teach the network, you know, is this new model that I place in here going to be true or false at the end? It actually does a pretty good job, you know, 90 something percent of the time it's correct in determining if that's true or false. But I see the way that our brain works is very similar to this. When it comes to the central governor theory, we have these 10 input nodes. They all have some factor affecting the next layer of the network. And then that has some factor affecting the next layer of the network. And by the time we get to the end of the network, it says, can we go harder? Can we not go harder? And by training or by, um, you know, having a carbohydrate wash or, whatever we're actually affecting that model we're affecting the inputs of that model such that maybe on the other end we can get a different value such that we can go harder or uh, maybe if the if we incorrectly you know add the wrong inputs to the start side of the model maybe it says actually we want you to go slower and so it seems like the next step here is figuring out for probably person by person what what for them can we change on the front end so that the back end of the model says, yes, you can go harder.
0: Yeah. I think that's probably the challenge. I imagine there's, you know, I may not person by person, of course, you know, individualizing is great, but there's probably subsets of people, right? Like there's classes of individuals where you say like, yeah, you know, if you're, you fit in this class and this is going to be the right thing for us to, you know, move the dial on and you're, Yeah, I mean, I think we we see this with riders, right? And you have riders that excel, you know, the more anaerobic is really their sweet spot versus doing, you know, really long endurance efforts and just being on the bike for a long time. And, you know, like you could sort of class people that way. And I imagine with this sort of thing, you might be able to also uh, break people down into classes and say, okay, this is like, this is gonna be the most bang for your buck in changing the output at the end of the day.
1: Yeah, so in the same way that, Re- researchers originally in the man is a machine model of uh, human performance they they tried to cancel out each of these different areas is it the heart is it the muscle is it the central nervous system i think that you know as a scientific community we need to make a list of potential mental barriers or central governor theory related barriers that we can test the effects of these essentially, you know, we're, we're going to apply a bunch of different placebos and see which ones have the most effect for different groups of people and see if we can, you know, notice some patterns in them.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's interesting. I, I want to say you mentioned this on a, an episode a while back, uh, but you said, oh yeah, my, my teammate was using a certain drink and was pretty amped up and like thought he had, you know, better, better power uh, during his workout. Well, you know, saying like, well, to, you know, is it a drink or what? And I think your response as well, so long as you feel like you're getting a better workout, then just keep doing what you're doing. And it's like, you know, that maybe that was the thing for him. And so like, if you can find those things, I think maybe we all do in our training once in a while, like, oh, just, just run with it. I don't, don't ask questions anymore. Yeah. Or do.
1: Well, so on that topic of, you know, maybe something the, that you could take home with you is, um, There's also another machine learning concept of, uh, it's called reinforcement learning, where you, you try and do the things that you already know work, but every once in a while you do something that you don't know if it works just to see. And the point is you have to find the right balance between doing this thing that you know that works and also diverging to see if that could potentially be better. And that's, I think, here is a good example of finding that balance of, Um, well, I know that this electrolyte drink that I have works, like it's definitely better than just water, you know, for example, but there's this other electrolyte drink that, you know, a lot of people are raving about. Um, it seems to work pretty well, or maybe the, the price is better for me. Like it's, it's more realistic to use every day. What's the right balance between trying that thing once, trying that thing for a week, um, Or, you know, do I just stick with what I have and not mess with it? It's good enough. Um, Finding this right balance in order to get these things that we really like, either mentally or physically, like we just respond well to these things. What's the right balance for how often we try new things? And, um, you know, like what's the rate of adaptation to finding the perfect balance of all these things we really like to turn us into the best athlete we can be?
0: like game theory to answer that um it's like the uh, the secretary problem so it's famously called it, though that's a, the right way right, thing to call it it's like the hiring problem now um or the um like the the classic slot machine problem like pull, changing and pull, pulling the arms until you get something that, that pays out uh but but it is interesting because i think having a, a valuable or a reliable baseline is so crucial for that That's also, I think about my treatment for patients is like, first, I want to establish that I have something that reliably changes your symptoms. Mm -hmm. And then once I know that, then I will, you know, see if there's something that can change your symptoms more, right? For resolution, of course, right? Can I, can I resolve your symptoms quicker by doing something different? But first, let me find something, let me find the thing that works that, right? And then once I've established that, then I'm willing to say, okay, let me see if there's something that works better. Yeah, um, and then and I, I know at the end of the day I can always come back to the thing that works. If I think it find something that works better,
1: yeah. So so this goes back to also our bike fitting episode where um, you just want to be in the right zone. We don't want anything too crazy, you know. Uh, you should have a neutral cleat position, like a reasonable saddle height for your height. Um, you know, don't don't have your stem slammed, but also shouldn't be skyward, um, and. This idea, I think, across the board is the first step is to um, let's have a, a good diet. You know, let's try to, you know, I think that we should be trying to emphasize carbohydrates. Let's find a good carbohydrate proportion that works for the workouts. And let's make sure we're hydrating enough. It doesn't need to be perfect. Just, you know, just make sure you hydrate and make sure your fit's pretty good. Um, make sure your workouts have, you know, some intensity, but also some endurance and, let's just you know, make sure everything's pretty good and see if we get better from there. And if we're getting better just with the pretty good stuff, then now it's time to go in further and see if we can amplify or accentuate certain parts to get even more performance out of them.
0: I think for most of us, if we're consistent with the pretty good, we're going to see some improvement. It's only when you get to the, the top levels where you're trying to dial in every, everything to get that last little increment of improvement.
1: Yeah, I would say for most people, they should just focus on dialing in, not, sorry, not dialing in, getting the general concepts down. You should have the general concepts of nutrition, general concepts of bike fitting, general tactics, you know, pretty good bike tactics if you're racing, um, pretty good fueling on the bike, all these things, just make sure they're pretty good. They don't have to be exactly perfect, they don't have to be exactly optimal. But if you get 85% of the way there across the board, you're better off than most other people who are in this sport.
0: So yeah, and it's not not eighty five percent, right? It's like those things are, those things multiply. So it's probably like if you got most of your all your things to eighty five percent, you're probably doing better than ninety five percent of your peers.
1: Yeah, yeah. If you can get everything down to eighty five percent or up to eighty five percent, yeah, you are probably flying absolutely. So don't worry about that last fifteen percent. That's what you know, there are people who race bikes for a living. Those are the people who are uh, digging into that 85% to get it to 90 to 95. But for the rest of us, um, if you get to 85%, you're fast, for sure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, we, we diverged a little bit from uh, what causes fatigue. Although I guess it was more hypothetical of how we solve what, what causes fatigue.
1: Yeah, um, well, I think that... Um, You know, this is an open research topic. We don't really know a lot of these things, but just trying to understand, you know, the influence of the brain on the body and uh, the fact that it's actually really complicated the interconnections of these different effects on our performance. And um, all we can do is try our best to make sure we don't have, um, you know, any of these at 5% or 10%. And, you know, we get them all up to a pretty high level. We have, um, you know, good quality in a bunch of different aspects of the sport it should turn out well
0: yeah i think that's perfectly fair and i think you know the point you made and i think you know it's a point i'm i'm a fan of is, um, training training is probably about getting our brain to accept what we're doing um you know as much as it is some of the physiologic changes that we can measure uh so you know i think When you think about your training, yeah, sure, we're improving our VOT max, improving our cardiac output, and these are the nice things that we can measure, but I think, you know, and the similar theory with stretching as well is stretching may not be so much about changing the muscle tissue all that much, but it might just be about making your brain okay with allowing you to stretch that far. Uh, So, uh, you know, I think with those things is, yeah, if we can improve our cardiac output, then, yeah, our central governor will probably let us go a little further.
1: Yeah. And, uh, also, you know, go, go try some new things in training, go do a ride longer than you've done before, or try and hold that interval for a minute or two longer than you do. And those are the ways that we push back the governor so that we say, look, it's going to be okay because I just did it. And uh, once you push it back a, a number of times, you really start to see big improvements in your overall capacity in that area.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. So, uh,
1: you got anything else for us, Todd? I think it might be time to wrap up the episode.
0: I mean, I think it's uh, you know it's a huge, huge, huge topic. I'm sure we could be here for much, much longer discussing this. But uh, I think we did it a, a reasonable service, at least at this point, uh, at least enough maybe to whet your appetite and, and get you more excited about you know, Central Governor and what, what causes fatigue and maybe what doesn't. So, I think with that, I will leave off with my usual Wisdom or advice, which is to keep the riverside down.